Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When diplomacy fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fell's remastered look at the Russo-Japanese War, which originally aired on the 1st of June, 2012. Hey guys, welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach, and I'm glad you're still with us. Now we're back to the pre-war era after fooling around with Hannibal in the last episode, I'd like to think that our programming made a bit more sense five years ago from this point, and so should hopefully make a bit more sense now. The Russo-Japanese War is nostalgic for other reasons too, as if you know your When Diplomacy Fails history, you'll know that this was the first episode in which I bothered you with B-Fit. Who can imagine a When Diplomacy Fails without B-Fit? Well, believe it or not, it was here. About two weeks after I'd begun, that... I racked my brains thinking of the most irritating, brilliant, and catchy acronym to help you guys remember how to best support us, and so BFIT was born. Keeping with the tradition, then, <laughs> I think it's only appropriate to run down BFIT now. B is for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, but you should really go to the website instead, wdfpodcast.com. E is for email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Please email me. Let me know that you're enjoying this insane remastered special that I'm doing. F is for Facebook, When Diplomacy Fells Podcast Facebook page, which you can go and like and tell me via the message 
function on that or just by posting on the wall or by sharing its status to get the word out there on the book of face that really has helped spread the word about this podcast really well i is for itunes which we're lighting up at the moment because we're releasing so many episodes make sure you go to itunes rate review and subscribe to the podcast so that the itunes algorithm knows how wonderful we are and finally t is for tell as in tell anyone anything anybody anyone about what's going on Tell your friends, tell your family members, tell all the people in your life, especially because at the moment we are going crazy. Five weeks to run wild, folks. Five weeks to run wild. I think that's probably the most efficient we've ever been with BeFit. But yeah, there you go. Go to the podcast website, wdfpodcast.com, to find other ways to help out this podcast, including giving a tiny bit every month. Become a patron. For when diplomacy fails, you will receive not only wonderful goodies, but you'll also receive the warm and fuzzy feeling inside that helps you to know for sure that you are doing a wonderful thing and helping this podcast grow. Which, as you may have noticed from all of these constant plugs and appeals for aid, is one facet of this great, spectacular birthday extravaganza we have going. The other is to simply give you a gift. Speaking of gifts, if you actually become a patron, you will actually receive gifts in various different forms for the money that you do give. So it's not like I'm not giving you anything. And in fact, one could argue it's a pretty sweet deal. Certainly a sweeter deal than the Russians got when they fought the Japanese. Speaking of which, let's get on with it. Now, we need to talk about something, guys. It should be obvious if you've listened to this original recording of the Russo-Japanese War that putting on accents of any kind for effect is a bad idea, was a bad idea, and will always be a bad idea. When I recorded this episode originally and put those wonderful Russian accents on, I thought it was hilarious for all of about 24 hours, and then realised the blatantly obvious fact that those terrible accents will be in my feed forever. Thus, a big part of why remastering is so great is because I get to apply a gentle eraser over them and replace them with a better, more mature and a far more relaxed speaking voice as well as a tightened script, hopefully. If you really want to hear the original, though, make sure to check out the website's skirmish episodes. Don't forget all the old episodes are still on the website, guys. They're just not in the feed anymore. And they are free for all of you to access if you're one of those people that likes to punish yourself. All that being said, it's time to revisit one of my favourite wars of all time, which you're allowed to say when you're an historian, by the way, I'm sure. Anyway, I will now take you to the year 1867. I have known war, as few men now living know it. Its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. Douglas MacArthur On the 19th of November, 1867, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, the 15th Tokugawa Shogun, resigned from his position as head of the Tokugawan Shogunate. The Shogunate was basically a feudal form of government and a shogun was just a fancy name for a dictator in Japan. These dictators were more of a hereditary dynasty, though, in that power had been handed through their sons since 1603. It was in 1603 that the Tokugawa shogunate was established by the first Tokugawa, his name being Tokugawa Ieyasu. 
We would compare Tokugawa's moves to that of a general setting up a new monarchy, the kind of event which happened so frequently during the chaotic times of the Roman Empire. See, I can link episode 2 with things. However, unlike the small many dynasties of the Roman Empire, sorry episode 2, the Tokugawa shogunate did not last merely a few years. It lasted 265 years. During this time, the Tokugawa shogunate implemented various policies, including the most interesting one of all, Sokoku. Sokoku was basically a period of extreme isolationism in Japan. In Japanese, the word means locking the country. But why did the shogunate pursue this policy? Well, to understand the shogunate's moves, we need to remember what the situation in the world was in 1639, the year in which Sokoku was formally established. In the 1630s, Japan watched European powers expanding, and would have felt certain that, unless something was done to halt the European powers soon, Japan would be the next new world, open to European exploitation. It would of course be wrong to present the West as imperialising at this early stage, since the East remained a land of mystery and the Chinese in particular was seen as an especially awesome and great trading power to have. As Europeans fought amongst themselves, they hadn't yet begun to divvy Asia into different blocks. Britain merely had a small trading presence in India, as did many other European powers, though the Mughal Empire was still supreme there, and the New World in North America still boasted only a few permanent settlements along its east coast. Despite the early divided attentions of Europe, though, the Tokugawa shogunate was only in its infancy at this stage, so it reacted to the encroachment and increasing presence of European trading and exploration vessels, not to mention Christian missionaries, by issuing a massive change in Japanese policy. This was Sokoku. In 1639, Tokugawa, Aimitsu, enacted a number of edicts which prevented foreign trade and forbid Christianity. No Japanese citizens were allowed to leave the country, and any foreigner who entered Japan would face the death penalty. Japan effectively closed itself off from the world, trading only with the Dutch, of course, on the conclusion that they did not attempt to convert the Japanese population, as well as China, Korea, and some other Japanese territories. It was a policy which would influence Japan's development for the next 200 years, a very interesting period of history to say the least. While we may see it as an extreme reaction, who's to say what would have happened had Japan not enacted Sokoku? Would they have been wealthier? Well, perhaps they would have, but it's also entirely possible that Japanese sovereignty would have been as disrespected by the Western powers as China's would be in the 19th century. Whatever the inspiration for the move and the results that came out of it, Japan's period of isolation ended as abruptly as it had begun. In 1854, an American known as Commodore Perry negotiated a trade deal with Japan after much previous diplomacy. The Tokugawa at this time was Aoyoshi. As Tokugawa, he was himself tiring of Sokoku and had begun to recognise the importance of trade with the emerging power of America. Conservatives within the shogunate appealed this decision, but Aoyoshi was determined to reopen Japan. Perhaps it was the desire to trade that influenced Aoyoshi to wind down the policy of Sokoku. However, another factor was almost certainly Aoyoshi's acceptance of the fact that Japan needed to modernize. You see, during the course of these negotiations between America and Japan, there was a palpable level of gunboat diplomacy present. Ayoshi would have noted, with dismay, 
just how technologically advanced the Americans' steel warships and ironclad steamers were, not to mention the fact that these same hulking modern vessels had their guns pointed menacingly towards the Japanese towns. Ayoshi knew that Japan was in danger of being left behind, perhaps exploited if they didn't move with the times. The Convention of Kanagawa, as the treaties between Japan and America came to be known, was the first step towards ending the policy of Sokoku. Tokugawa Ayoshi could not have known it at the time, but it was also the first step towards the ending of the shogunate. From this act, Japan went on to sign what became known as the Ansai, or Five Power Treaties with the powers of America, Russia, France, Britain and the Netherlands. There was some anxiety in Japan as to just precisely what the angle of the Western powers was. Did they want to exploit Japan's resources or make disadvantageous trade deals? This was the era of the scramble for China, don't forget, and the recent disasters in China would develop into a straight-up land grab on the Chinese mainland, by all the major European powers, culminating in the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, after which the situation got even worse for the Chinese. The Japanese thus had good reason to feel cautious, for though Ayoshi accepted change was needed, he must have been wary not to invite the devil to his door by the very practices which he hoped would save the nation. The idea that the Japanese didn't want to become another China is a theme which continues for the second half of the 19th century, until Japan definitively distinguishes itself from its Asian neighbour and makes its own destiny. In the 1850s, though, all that the Tokugawa and Shogunate could do was hope for the best. Despite the opening of Japan's trade ports, a niggling aura of xenophobia and racial superiority remained behind. Combined with the clearly different appearances of the Western traders, The Japanese sought to define themselves as inherently better by adopting Western ideas faster and more effectively than any of their neighbours. If trade couldn't ease the isolation ideology then, it could certainly open the minds of the Japanese to new technologies, and this was the key element in Japan's history which made the rise of the Empire of Japan so stand out. As the years progressed, Japan began to send its diplomats to various countries and connect itself with previously unknown states and empires, but the suspicion of Western intentions remained strong. Then in 1867, a critical event happened in the history of Japan. The Meiji Restoration, as it came to be known, was a series of events set in motion by the resignation of the final Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu. His resignation on the 19th of November 1867, meant that his powers were given to the Emperor of Japan. Over Japanese history, the power of emperors had shifted back and forth between de facto, de jure and spiritual leadership of Japan. You see, Japan had always had an empire, dating back to 660 BC, making it, in the minds of the Japanese, the oldest hereditary monarchy in the world. In fact, the emperor still exists as the figurehead of Japan today, The current and 125th Emperor of Japan, Akihito, has his birthday on the 23rd of December, and the day is celebrated in Japan as a national holiday. The current Japanese Emperor has ceremonial powers and is the head of Japan's constitutional monarchy, its Shinto religion, and is also Japan's head of state. Where am I going with this? Well, absolutely nowhere. I just thought it was interesting, and told you in case you want to celebrate his birthday too. The Meiji Restoration was named after the Emperor at that time, 
Emperor Meiji. The Boshin War followed the resignation of Tokugawa Yoshinobu, as forces loyal to him fought forces loyal to the Emperor. The Civil War ended in 1870 when the Emperor became the overall authority figure in Japan, and this mode of government continued in Japan until Japan was forced to democratize after its defeat in World War II. The years after the Meiji Restoration saw Japan's rapid industrialism, expansion of its army and, crucially, the training of naval and military personnel in Western European colleges in Britain, France and Germany. This brought a wealth of new ideas and the acceptance of Western technology to Japan, which became a kind of bastion of modernism in Asia at the dawn of the 20th century, even while it largely held on to its old feudal and imperial practices, notwithstanding the fact that it had a over 2,000-year-old imperial dynasty at its head. Britain in particular would aid Japan immensely in its early years of growth. Japan sent its nationals to Britain to learn English, it gave Britain a monopoly on its trade and time, and Britain built the majority of Japanese ships, as well as teaching the Japanese how to build their own. Japan's growth and expansion had consequences for the surrounding nations in Asia though, in particular the Chinese. The Sino-Japanese War erupted in August 1894 and ended in April, the following year, with a complete and total defeat of China by Japanese hands. Japan's modern forces and modern ideas bulldozed the disorganised and poorly equipped Chinese troops. The Japanese continued expanding after the peace treaty was signed, most notably into Korea and then partially into Manchuria, which, for the sake of geography, was basically northeast China. The defeat of China had been devastating. The status quo in Asia had changed after thousands of years. The Japanese now had a free hand, or so they believed. You see, Japanese strategists would likely have realised now why Britain had been so eager to aid it before, when it saw the might of its other neighbour and future enemy, Russia. By the end of the 19th century, no other empire on earth concerned or occupied British attentions as much as Russia did. British officials had long suspected that Russian imperial intentions in Asia would start a war. Britain envisioned Russia expanding south into Afghanistan, west into the Balkans and east into Manchuria. By propping up Japan, Britain could ensure that it possessed a like-minded ally in the region, a foil to Russia and a potential barrier against St. Petersburg becoming too powerful in the east. However, at the same time, it is doubtful the British realised just how successful Japan's halting of Russia would be. Tsar Nicholas II would have wondered at the scale and power of his empire. No other empire... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the world commanded such a huge, uninterrupted landmass. It stretched from Poland in the west to the Pacific Ocean in the east. On its borders were Germans, Austrians, Ottomans, Chinese, Mongolians, and now Japanese. Japan was a new issue for Russia. By the 1890s, Japan was merely a baby in world affairs, and yet here it was, laughably attempting to enter the international system when it was less than 50 years old on the world stage. Only 50 years previously, nobody even knew or cared of its ambitions, cut off as it was from the outside world, but the Tsar recognised that times were changing. A quarter of a century previously, the mass of German states had been united under Prussia into a larger Germany, changing overnight the balance of power in Europe. The year was 1895 now, though. Bismarck was gone from the helm of Germany, and Germany was trying to make its own impact on the world stage. In addition, only recently in 1894 had a Franco-Russian alliance been signed, which tied the vast Russian Empire to France, and marked a new departure in Russian foreign policy, as well as European affairs. The level of diplomatic intrigue is sometimes hard to wrap your head around at this stage, but the details of it are important if we are to appreciate where Europe was by now. The popular imagination which casts Europe into two armed camps is of course a belief we know to be oversimplified, but it is worth looking at the German behaviour in the years and months just before the war broke out to understand the situation better. By 1899, it seemed as though Germany, though not in trouble per se, was certainly waning diplomatically, thanks largely to a strengthening of the Franco-Russian Entente that year, which bound the two states to aid one another militarily and compelled the French to invest yet more money into the Russian infrastructure and armed forces, the problem of German isolation, and of being surrounded to the east and west, bore down on Berlin, even while its own diplomacy seemed to have trapped it within a triple alliance that offered very few of the direct benefits that its rivals enjoyed. For starters, Germany was the leader of its alliance bloc, and this bloc constituted an Italy that was more interested in colonial affairs than anything else, and eager to recoup its own losses after the embarrassment that was its war with Ethiopia, which turned Rome into a laughingstock of Europe anyway. Not to mention the fact that Italian loyalties or willingness to fight in Europe alongside Germany seemed consistently in doubt. Added to this were rumours that Rome was approaching Paris to reach a colonial understanding, and such talks could lead to an understanding in the future along other political lines, which might neuter the Triple Alliance before that agreement was even put into practice. With Italy questionable, the Austro-Hungarian element of the Triple Alliance didn't exactly exude confidence either, trapped as it was between the Balkan Slavs and ideas of its own mortality, which the concert of powers seemed certain was only a campaign away. Although the Austrians were loyal to Berlin, they were still the deeply divided empire, with the Hungarian element proving particularly troublesome alongside the national issues already plaguing the dual monarchy. Thus Germany was tied to some fairly weak powers already occupied with their own affairs. 
In despair of its position did Berlin turn to Britain, but the failure of this approach, of the Anglo-German alliance, and the idea that London had wanted the alliance more than Berlin did, led both powers to come away from this diplomatic failure, feeling offended. Just as they were smarting from this failure, it was learned that Britain had offered Japan an alliance instead, on apparently better terms than had been offered to Germany, so the word went. Irritation at this turned to opportunism, though, as it was clear another camp had emerged in world affairs. The aim in Berlin now became to play off the Franco-Russian and Anglo-Japanese groupings against one another wherever possible, which seemed increasingly possible as a war between Russia and Japan in Asia looked increasingly likely. Being outside the general conflagration but standing to benefit from it, German diplomacy by 1903 found itself in a somewhat Bismarckian position, and almost by accident. Soon German officials were being summoned by their Russian counterparts, who wanted to know what the German position would be in the event of a war that began with Japan but widened across the world. What price Germany would exact for such support was not yet clear. Bernhard von Bülow, the German Chancellor at this time, himself noted that, We shall have to deal with this matter with the greatest care and delicacy. His Majesty, Kaiser Wilhelm II, hinted to Tsar Nicholas in Raval and Danzig that in the event of an attack on Russia in the Orient, he would cover the Russian rear. On the other hand, as Bülow wrote to Friedrich von Holstein, the German Foreign Secretary, in January 1904, From the point of view of our internal policies and to counteract the general dissatisfaction in Germany, it would of course be a good thing if, somewhere far away, the nations came to blows. Germany evidently had to pause and think of the European complications which may result from any Russo-Japanese war. Would France move to support Russia, even if Germany loomed as a troubling neutral? Or would it make sense for Germany to attack France by itself, while Russia was distracted? Added to this were Scandinavian complications, which have been mostly underrated in history. You see, the question of Danish and Swedish neutrality was surprisingly important, thanks to Danish control of the waterways in the Baltic Sea, particularly along the Sound, which meant that if these passages became clogged by sunk ships or, or intense naval police forces or what have you, any possible German naval manoeuvres would be prevented from making their presence felt against any of the belligerents at sea held up as they would be in the Baltic Sea themselves. As if testifying to the idea that the German system of government was in a torrid state of affairs at this point, there happened to be three different German naval offices, all of which held competing ideas and all of which reported directly to the Kaiser. One advocated a preemptive war on Denmark to prevent Copenhagen from blocking the sound or providing pilots to would-be enemy ships. Another advocated neutrality, and another still advocated moving the navy now to some colonial port and relying on the Scandinavians in a firm alliance, which would have to be, of course, developed. It was a crazy state of affairs, really, uniquely German, in the words of the historian Jonathan Steinberg. On top of this, when the war broke out, the German declaration of neutrality in that war wasn't made public, even though it had been crafted by the government, and this additional level of governmental chaos confused German diplomats as much as it confused the world. It also led Germany to become involved in some sticky deals, such as the one to supply the Russians with coal, as though they were an ally of the Russians, 
while the German embassy in Tokyo was said to have offered favorable mediation terms to the Japanese, facts which enabled Berlin to alienate both parties in the war. So German inadequacy in diplomacy was a problem at this stage, and both before and during the war it meant that Berlin could appear offensive and belligerent, even while German officials were simply a badly coordinated bunch, and hadn't been given sufficient orders to know how to proceed. German faux pas notwithstanding though, European powers were fixed not just on affairs at home, particularly for those powers looking to expand abroad, and specifically in Asia, the Russo-Japanese war complicated matters. China had long since been a great opportunity for Russia in particular. Russia could move with impunity there, unlike in Europe, where nationalistic, multi-ethnic empires watched its moves with a barely veiled hostility. For Russian expansionists, things seemed less complicated in the Far East. Sphere of influence stretched hundreds of thousands of miles, and claims could be easily won or defended with a few men or a shake of the big stick. It used to be easy, that is, because now another nation was claiming parts of China for its own, Japan. The Russian Trans-Siberian Railway had vastly increased the territory under Russian control, and massively increased Russia's ability to project its power, but it was not finished yet. Russian plans to expand into Manchuria were thus complicated by Japan, but Russia had additional goals. Its only port on the Pacific Ocean was Vladivostok. Vladivostok was a difficult issue though because of its tendency to be iced over for half of the year. For Russia to expand efficiently in the Far East, it needed what was called a warm water port, in other words a port that wouldn't be frozen for half of the year. The Tsar and his advisors believed they had found it at Port Arthur. Port Arthur was the reinforced naval base located on the Laodong Peninsula. The Laodong Peninsula is the name given to the small amount of land jutting out from the west side of what is now North Korea. At that time, Japan exerted its imperium over all of Korea, including the Laodong Peninsula, where Port Arthur was located. Japan had gained this area since its victory in the war against China that year. Late in 1895, Russia stepped up its diplomatic game and began mounting pressure against Japan to relinquish its claim to the Laodong Peninsula and Port Arthur in the process. To achieve this, it pulled Germany and France into the dispute. Japan protested it was merely exercising its authority over land that it rightfully owned per the treaty signed with China, but Russia pressed the issue. Bitterly then, Japan relinquished its claim to the Laodong Peninsula in early 1896, Russia agreed to pay Japan compensation and even feigned a great deal of gratitude, but the Japanese were furious and they burned with resentment towards Russia. A historian of the period, Dr. Stuart Leone, explains how in 1899 the Japanese Prime Minister of the day, Yamagata, had actually contemplated abandoning all interest in Korea if this was necessary to avoid war with Russia, and only in late December 1903 had he been forced to concede that War could no longer be avoided. Such a stance towards the seemingly impossible juggernaut that was Russia was a sign of things to come. Japan saw additional Russian expansion plans as a threat to its sovereignty. In 1898, Russia was claiming parts of northern Korea as its own, in addition to the Laodong Peninsula. Of course, Russia was particularly interested in the industrial bases previously established and developed by the Japanese. 
The Trans-Siberian Railway threatened to increase Russian power in the region, and this was something that the Japanese simply couldn't allow. Japan was developing various strategies to combat Russian expansion, but the primary moves were made in diplomacy. Suggestions were proposed in the Japanese government that Japan should present itself to other Western powers concerned at Russian expansion, of which there were a good few. Then in 1900, Chinese nationalists began rebelling against what they saw as Western powers compromising their independence. Fair enough, because that's exactly what was happening. They started evicting foreign nationals and slaughtering Christians by the thousands. So the Eight Power Alliance was established, involving Britain, France, Austria, Germany, Russia, America, Italy, and, perhaps most notably of all, Japan. Representatives of these in the form of military contingents were then sent to fight the Chinese. The Boxer Rebellion had begun. It was, in effect, the result of many years of European manipulation of Chinese affairs, which dated back to the 1830s. Japanese authorities treated ventures in China as an opportunity to distinguish Japan from its Asian neighbours on the world stage. At the same time, though, Russia saw the opportunity to strengthen its hold on Manchuria, which it did as more Russian soldiers moved in, this time not just to guard the railway, but to settle in Manchuria itself. China sued for peace in late 1900, and Japan emerged from the conflict as something tantalisingly close to, at the very least, a considerable regional power. Certainly Britain recognised it as such, and an alliance was signed between the two countries in 1902. This was a new departure for London as well, and it had been provoked by Russian expansionism in Asia, and the possible threat which that policy posed to its Indian possessions. Somewhat isolated from European powers due to its previous splendid isolation policy, which were themselves coming to an end, the British government, led by Lord Salisbury, elected to search for a like-minded ally in the region, where Russian behaviour had been most troubling. The terms of the treaty noted that if a third power entered the war between Japan and Russia on the side of Russia, then Britain would intervene. It seemed as though both Britain and Japan were expecting a war with Russia in the near future, and a considerable lobby group in St. Petersburg believed that such a war for Asian expansion was just the shot in the arm that the Russian bear needed. In my head, I often compare this war to the Franco-Prussian War for a number of reasons. You see, you have a young power in Japan, as you had in Germany. You have a complete changing of the status quo once the war is over. And in the leaders of Russia and France, you have leaders who are unpopular and looking for a way to bolster that support. Both Napoleon III in 1870 and Tsar Nicholas II in 1904 believed that war would achieve this. A short, sharp war would unify the population behind the Tsar. But France and Russia were not the same. Russia was far too large. Its size defeated the purpose of the war that the Tsar was proposing to his generals. Because the French people would have supported war with Prussia, since their livelihoods seemed to be at stake, and they could see that success to the east would benefit the French people, but a Russian citizen as a whole could not see such things. Why should the European Russians, those closer to Western Europe than the East, care about a war far, far away against a power which the average citizen could not see or feel? There was no fear of Japan in Russia as there was a fear of Prussia in France in 1870. There was only a feeling of apathy directed towards a potential war and a feeling of dissatisfaction directed towards the Tsar. The Tsar was already fighting a diplomatic campaign with his own people and the desire of his people to have a say 
to end the autocracy that gave them no say in how their country was run, was a movement that the Tsar seemed powerless to stop. It remained to be seen whether the Russian people and their autocratic representatives would tolerate one another long enough for Russian predominance to show itself across the world, or whether the testy relationship would contribute to what was already looking like an immensely troubling international situation. For many years, Russian Tsars had appealed to their people during wartime, and these appeals often proved effective enough to get the empire through dark times. What you had at the dawn of the 20th century was a Russian empire propped up in its debts by French money, and propped up militarily by the impression and image of Russian armies pouring over the borders of its enemies. The Russian strength and the grit of the Russian conscript was believed to be so overbearing and insurmountable that Britain had spent millions of pounds on staffing its colonies in India and its interests elsewhere in Asia with expensive, well-trained and battle-hardened soldiers. These soldiers were ready to defend British possessions once the Russians came knocking. Despite the preparations made and the decades spent eyeing one another up nervously since the Crimean War in the 1850s, the vast majority of British military planners confessed their belief to the government that more was needed. More materials, more men, more money was needed to be invested. London had exhausted itself trying to defend as effectively as possible what it owned. Like the Romans defending the Rhine, they imagined the Russians bearing down on them in overwhelming numbers and with terrifying speed like so many barbarians. At least when the Romans defended the Rhine, though, they appreciated how divided their enemy was on the other side of the river. There was no concept in Britain which allowed for the Russian effort failing on the world stage, you see. Russia had been overestimated for so long, it had become a key part of Britain's foreign and defence policy. But soon, very soon, the scales would fall from London's eyes. Next time, we'll see where all of these tensions inevitably led. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.